Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, I have two guests uh, this time around. I have Dr. Peter Koshland and Sir Jim Hernser. Dr. Koshland is the owner of Koshland Farm in San Francisco, which he opened in 2009. And Mr. Hernser founded Las Colinas Pharmacy, a compounding and wellness uh, center, in 1984. Both are members of the Alliance for Pharmacy Compounding, or APC. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you. Thank you, yeah. Eric, for having us. Hey, I want you guys on here because I haven't really talked a ton about compounding, and that's kind of what you guys are really like the pros at here. And I'll admit I'm very much a novice as far as you know, pharmacists go on compounding. Kind of just to get the elephant in the room off the back here, a lot of people have heard of the issues in the past decade or so now with the New England Compounding Center and the fungal meningitis outbreak that they had that just made headlines all over the U.S. And some of the serious allegations and convictions around, you know, even some of the billing practices when it comes to compounding. With this, we have seen the FDA really step up in regulating the industry and just compounding in general. Can you give us and the guests like a brief overview of like from a pharmacist level and some of the issues both of you believe that this presents? I'm sure happy to take a shot at that. Um, you know, Eric, in every profession that does good work, there's bad actors. You're going to find them. Uh, I don't care if you're a lawyer or a CPA. You know, there's going to be bad guys out there. And, and unfortunately, those few bad actors can make the entire industry look bad. And we know that's not the truth, but that's the way the public perceives it. And personally, I, I tell you, I'm so proud of the ethical compounders out there that are making such a big difference in patients' lives. We really change patients' lives. And so I hope sometime during this we have a time for me and, and Peter to brag on some of the wonderful benefits that we provide for our patients. But back back to that tragedy, I mean, it was it was a horrible it was horribly tragic. And what the public and most pharmacists don't know is that NECC was inspected multiple times by both the FDA and the Massachusetts State Board of Pharmacy. And they were found to have just ridiculously filthy conditions. They had mold growing the walls, and they failed to act. And at the time, both the FDA and the Massachusetts State Board of Pharmacy was empowered to act. They were both charged to protect patients, and both entities failed to do their duty. And I don't know about you, but that is culpability. You know, yes, there was a bad guys in ECC, but here's two regulatory agencies designed to uh, protect the public that didn't do their job. Well, the FDA had big old bunch of egg on their face. And, uh, and they didn't like that. Uh, it embarrassed them because they knew they should have acted. And so they knee-jerked and, and really pushed to get use NCC, NECC as a springboard uh, for the Drug Quality Security Act to be uh, passed by Congress. And, uh, and the Drug Quality Security Act did give them a tighter rein on the compounding industry. We'll get more to that a little later. Uh, Peter and I both have comments about the FDA's role, but but as to the billing practices you brought up, that that's really important because in November I was speaking with a very I was in D.C. and uh, lobbying, and I was speaking with a very dedicated and fair-minded colonel who happened to be the head of pharmacy services for the entire Department of Defense. Uh, this is a big deal, guy, and and as you probably know, those few bad actors that were doing that predatory billing. Uh, and it was especially bad on TRICARE, military insurance, were doing so through express scripts. So while I was on the phone with the colonel, I said, I said, Colonel, um, 
do you feel there's any culpability on the part of ESI, Express Scripts, for allowing that practice to continue when they knew what was going on and they knew that your money was being wasted? And he replied that he was completely and fully aware of ESI's role in that unethical practice. So, so yes, there were some bad guys who were taking advantage of, a, of a, an opportunity, and, and I can tell you that I know a lot of them. Uh, or I knew of them. I didn't know them personally, but they were business guys. They were not pharmacists. They were business guys who had pharmacists working for them uh, doing that practice. But he went on to say, though, the colonel did. He said, he said, Jim, the reason I'm talking to you guys is because um, for my active duty and my retired military veterans, I feel like the compounded therapies offer hope and health for many of the health conditions that traditional medicines just really aren't addressing. And so, anyway, he's working with us right now to find a way forward to get compounding to help more veterans. And that's something that I, I work on a lot, personally, which I hope we can talk about later. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Dr. Koshland, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, that was well said. I, I, I mean, one of the reasons we're even you know, on this podcast and trying to put ourselves out there is just to really show people who maybe have only heard that story that... The, the real compounders, the guys who are really out here doing great health care, are just not like that. I mean, those NECC guys and these predatory billers, these guys are the, the, the most unethical, probably criminal, if not borderline criminal, fully criminal, uh, worst of the worst in terms of the way they behaved and behave in their practice. It just, it's not really truly representative of what compounders are about. It, it, it's sad to me because this is one of the most dedicated, patient-centric, uh, truly embodying the spirit of what pharmacy is in terms of just putting the patient front and center of everything that they do. There's this whole other side to it that's really encouraging and and exciting, I think, from a healthcare perspective that this option is available. So, uh, we, you know, that, that happened. It is a horrible tragedy. And we also want to let people know that the the good bright side of compounding is much much brighter, and there's a lot of interesting and exciting things that we do that um, really can help patients, and that's really why we're here. I know that's why Jim does what he does, and that's why I do what I do, and I know hundreds of other compounders that feel the same way and have dedicated their careers to really doing great patient care through their compounding practice. So, you know, that's really what we want to help express to other pharmacists and to the public at large that there's this whole other side that's really exciting and positive. Yeah. And, you know, I will say I have limited experience when it comes to compounding. Obviously it's pretty minimal from like my retail experiences, nothing on the level like you all do, but I know that we relied on a lot of those compounding pharmacies when it came to some of your oddball things, your more complicated things, just like even in like the Metro Cleveland area here, like there's a couple we always kind of kept in our back pocket so that when someone had something, you know, they got that referral just because we knew that they needed that little bit extra care. So I think that does go a long way. I want to kind of go back to what Jim said, though, about the FDA role and see if he can expand on that at all when it comes to uh, some of this oversight and regulation, if you will. Yeah, well, I mean, we're in the situation where the regulatory bodies that govern us, the FDA kind of from the national standpoint and our state boards of pharmacy really have curtailed our ability to practice patient care. I mean, I think that's really the bottom line. Uh, we're constantly fighting to make therapies available that we know help patients. And we feel that we're constantly being threatened with having stuff removed. And it's kind of, in some ways, the 
death by a thousand cuts. You know, maybe it's one drug here, one drug there. Um, we'll probably get into just generally hormones in general. That's really being, you know, uh, threatened or potentially threatened on the horizon. So it's really unfortunate because, again, we're, we're really here for our patients. We're trying to find therapies that will make them healthy and live a fulfilling life where their health is well-established. And, uh, you know, if they could get that from a regular pharmacy, regular off-the-shelf drug, they would have done that already. They're coming to us because they've run out, run out of options. And the idea that we're going to have stuff taken away that's really helping people is really a scary prospect. And we're just really trying to do everything we can to advocate for what we do and put forward this the need for this specialty customized medication for those patients who really need options that um, don't exist on the shelves of your Walgreens or CVS. This hormone question, Eric, is really personal for me. Shortly after we opened our store back in in 84, um, my wife had total hysterectomy, oophorectomy. So at 28 years old, I had a menopausal woman on my hands. And the doctor said, oh, don't worry about it. You know, we'll just give her some primer and she'll be fine. Well, she wasn't. She was worse. I mean, I, I saw her literally falling apart in front of my eyes. I mean, this was a girl who was running for Miss Oklahoma. She was modeling here in Dallas. I mean, she was managing a department store. I mean, she had m- photographic memory. I mean, she was a dynamo. And all of a sudden, she's just uh, completely broken down. I mean, anxiety-ridden. She, Her memory was gone. I mean, she had no get-up-and-go. I mean, it was a totally different person from, from who I married. And I thought, I've got to try to fix this. And and so, anyway, I mean, my doctor buddies, I mean, I had a lot of friends who were doctors, and they said, Jim, we don't know what's wrong with her. We just wouldn't want to live in her body. And and so that's when, when we exhausted what was available out there. And that's when I came up with the idea to make the first transdermal um, bioidentical hormone, an estradiol transdermal gel uh, for her. And from there, we have progressed in our knowledge of hormones and into a, a knowledge of hormone balance. And uh, and so me just trying to help my wife turned into becoming a lifelong passion of trying to help women and men balance their hormones and, and improve their quality of life. And uh, and. You know, Peter and I, neither one of us are anti-FDA, you know, and I, we've talked about this privately and publicly both. Um, but when it comes to compounding, FDA is has has adopted an anti-compounding culture. Matter of fact, I was in Houston at a conference, and Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who had been the uh, director of the FDA, had just stepped down. And so he was speaking at this conference in Houston, and uh, and, and he got up there, and he very candidly said, you know, at the FDA, we have an anti-compounding culture. I mean, he said it out loud. And he and he said, and, and we had intercepted emails and said, you know, oh, this is going to be another, this regulation will be another nail in the coffin of compounders. So it's in their their DNA to want compounding gone. And uh, and anyway, uh, and he's left, but it, it, that anti-compounding culture didn't start with him and it didn't finish when he left. I mean, it's still there. But once he saw, like, one of our high-quality chemical suppliers um, in Houston, went, once he saw some compounding pharmacies, some high-level compounding pharmacies and the care they were providing, he goes, guys, i got to tell you that I'm really surprised and impressed with the quality and the safety and the patient care you guys are, are operating with. And, and he said, I just didn't know. Matter of fact, I didn't want to know when I was in, in the FDA. I didn't want to know this. All I wanted to know is that we were against you, and that was it. And so, see, this is the kind of thing that, that – uh, that, people don't understand. So, you know, with that scenario in mind, 
you realize that that 50% of women, more than 50% of women in America, are using compounded bioidentical hormones. When I say, I should say 50% of women who are using hormones are using compounded bioidentical hormones. Well, that's a big threat to to a course that why it's pharmaceuticals. (laughs) Well, now I guess they're now Pfizer, right? (laughs) Yeah. I could keep up with all the all the uh, mergers, um, so that's a big threat. And but the FDA decided, you know, we're going to commission a study, and and it's going to be a study with uh, over at uh, National College of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, and we're going to we're going to discredit the safety and clinical utility of compounded biological hormones. It'll give us a way to get rid of hormones. And uh, and Pete. Do you want to comment on what your experience was like when you went to NASM? Well, let's just say that my experience speaking to them was very different than what the report showed when it got published <laughs> because it was a very constructive and kind of similar to this conversation. They didn't know a lot about compounding, and I talked a lot about our quality assurance, which is extremely extensive, um, and kind of the patient counseling and kind of the role we play and how we're really problem solvers for difficult cases. I mean, a lot of what we do is clinical pharmacy in the outpatient. I mean, I consult with doctors every day. I've got this tough patient. They've tried and failed everything. What can we do for them? And they were really surprised. They just hadn't seen that side of it. And I thought it was a very positive, constructive conversation. And then the NASM report came out, and it was a complete kind of screed against, you know, kind of how what we do doesn't fit into basically the pharmaceutical development process, which it never will because if, you know, that's just not what we do. Our stuff is for one patient. It's customized. It's in relationship with the patient and their doctor. And it just doesn't fit into the framework of what they understand. But there were some, there were some comments there. I'm sure Jim can speak to this too. I mean, the one thing that really stood out to me with the NASM report that I thought was just exemplified how out of touch the, that report was, was that one of their biggest complaints is that patients were determining their own course of care. <laughs> And I thought, oh, that's the problem, that patients are actually taking uh, their own health into their own hands and making determinations for their own health that are for the best for them. That's the problem. So that's the kind of attitude that that report had, very top-down, very, uh, you know, did did it check the boxes from the FDA's regulatory standpoint, not did it support and help people who really needed these customized options. And so very unfortunate outcome from that because at the end of the day, I think most of our motives are aligned and we, we want to help patients be well and have the, perf- the best therapy that they can get, whether that's a compound or not, that's really not what we're here for. We're here for providing for those people who just need what we have. So I'll, I'm sure, Jim, you have a few other comments yeah. about it too because I know you spoke to well, them as well. I, I, can, I can tell you that, that they were grilling me for almost three hours and, uh, and so, and I'd uh, I was, hey, I was so nervous because everything had been negative, negative, negative before I got up there. And I thought, man, they're going to try to crucify me up here. But, you know, I thought, you know what? They don't know what I know. And so I put forth all of my knowledge. I mean, you know, all these years of, of experience, um, all I put forth a lot of science. Peter put forth a lot of science. We put forth our quality that we do. We, we, we put forth um, all kinds of clinical guidelines that we use. And they ignored every bit of it. They ignored all of it. They ignored all the science we presented. They ignored all the experience we presented. And, and they completely found that, that compounding, there's no role uh, in modern healthcare for compounded hormones. And so we, uh, with the Compounding Foundation, which is a foundation that, that uh, supports compounders, 
um, hired a very reputable research body. It's called the Berkeley Institute, and uh, and they analyzed the NASM's findings, and they literally ripped NASM's work apart, and and they labeled it for what it was. Their their final words were, "It's nothing more than a biased opinion paper," and instead of being this this uh, two million dollar research um, uh, piece that that's science based and everything, they they labeled it as a biased opinion paper, and you know, and that is really sad that that the public's money gets spent on something as frivolous as that, but the FDA is going to use that that information which was not science based, is opinion based, to try to use against us to get rid of compounding and to get rid of concomitant hormones. Do you remember back in two thousand seven when the FDA banned estriol? Mm-hmm. Um, and that would have been negated our ability to, to formulate one of our most important hormones uh, bias, which is estradiol plus estriol combination. Well, this action was spurred by Wyeth Pharmaceuticals, and they had just put in a citizen's petition, which is illegal for a company to do that, but they did anyway, to the FDA saying estriol represented a significant health risk to the women of America. Now, you have to understand two important facts here. Number one, Wyeth was manufacturing and distributing two separate estriol-containing products in Europe. So I, I don't, somehow, I guess European women and American women are different. It's <laughs> dangerous American women, but not the European <laughs> women. <laughs> I mean, is that ludicrous? But the, but based on that, the FDA banned it. But then Wyeth did just that. Um, and the reason that they, they did this uh, is in spite of the fact that it's illegal for companies like Wyeth to leverage a regulatory agency or a government entity to gain a competitive advantage in the marketplace. But Wyeth did just that. They they. Find it, uh, filed the citizen petition, FDA acted on it, banned estriol, and and uh, Wyeth had lost $1.2 billion a year drop in sales on PrimPro after Women's Health Initiative 2002, Eric. So it was money. It was all about money. Right. And and bottom line is, is that us compounders got together and said, women, do you want your hormones to be taken away from you? And they rose up in the millions, and they petitioned the FDA, they petitioned Congress, and the ban was overturned. And here they are again. FDA is trying to do exactly the same thing all over. It's just a repeat, rinse, wash, and repeat. You know what? And here's the bottom line, Eric. I'm just going to just quickly say, if they were able to to succeed in taking hormones away, it will be harming millions of women. Period. So that's really what's at stake for us. And you know, why do we continue to kind of do this, even though all these, you know, regulatory bodies keep coming after us, because we love seeing our patients get well and find therapies that work for them. And uh, it's very, very important that we allow these therapies to be available to people who need them. Okay, so I will say it's, it's a little interesting for me to listen to some of this. And I'll tell you why is like part of it. I know a lot of women who birth controls work differently for for all of them, right? Like, it's the same concept, but you know, different strengths, different doses, all that stuff kind of works differently. Some will like this one, some like that one. And obviously if you're a pharmacist and you look at your birth control section, if you have a, you know, a good birth control section, it's can be pretty long. There's tons of them out there. And, you know, some women say, Hey, this one works better, but it's not perfect. This one's better, but this one's not perfect. And so when you can really taper that in, that can really make some, and this is not birth control, obviously, but hormone related therapies, when you can kind of really dial those in, that can really hit like a sweet spot for somebody where it works well for them and they can live their life in a fashion that I don't want to just say they feel fit, but that works for them to optimize like kind of their day-to-day living. 
Another interesting thing about that is, too, kind of going all the way back, is some of these headlines kind of go back to the if it bleeds, it leads kind of media strategy thing and with the FDA's role in that. And when when you're also looking at this, too, I I've kind of actually compare this and <laughs> – you know, Jim, you're a little bit older since you graduated uh, farm school, pretty much the same time my mom did, and she's not retired. But, but you know, this is this is kind of the way the FDA regulates things like, or not the FDA, but just Congress and legislative bodies and government bureaucracy. The way they legislate things like Facebook and Twitter, you could see very obvious in the in the in the hearings that they didn't understand it, and they understand they saw a problem, and there is a problem with those those sites and things like that. But when you have like these, and I'm going to call it what it is, these majority older men who are trying to regulate something they don't understand, it's really hard for them to like learn about it, get the nuance and catch up from when they're like behind the eight ball for almost two decades. Well, something like this that people know even less about is less in the public sphere. A body like the FDA, in my opinion, would like something like a big pharmaceutical plant that has a reputation because it's easier for them to have the contacts and know where to go to inspect it and to inspect one or two plants than to go into basically your back room and try and try and regulate that because there's your little back rooms and these compounding pharmacies all over. But I think there's a key thing in here is that we all have professional duties, professional obligations, professional ethics, and licenses that could be retracted if we were doing something that was really bad. Now, of course, obviously the NECC thing was just like blood on the wall for something like this and wh why they really needed to kind of go after it. And I understand that when because it was a bad story. I remember, I'm not even a compounding pharmacist, and I really thought that was a major eyesore, if not like broken leg on the profession that was so bad. But, you know, that's kind of just my opinion of that's the way they're seeing this, is it's easy for them to regulate when it's in one plant or something like a plant, and that's the only place it comes from, as opposed to all these quote-unquote little back rooms, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Would you guys agree with that? You never really hear about the idea that, that NECC was actually – a manufacturer that wanted to escape uh, some of the regulatory practices associated with manufacturing, so right. they they opened what they called a compounding pharmacy. But they, you know, they had they were making thirty thousand vials a, a month. I mean, it was a manufacturer; it wasn't a compounder. But they were doing it in filthy conditions, and you know, this is that was just the worst of the worst. It was greed, and greed in any situation is ugly, and uh, and and they, and they kill people. And you know, and they they got everything they deserve, with, which is jail time and and all, and and all of their fortunes are were taken. And uh, but but I still blame the FDA and I blame the Massachusetts Board of Pharmacy for even allowing that to happen. But that's why that's why uh, people at the FDA like Janet Woodcock, um, she was a former director um, of Cedar, which is the portion that that looks over compounding. She just hates compounders and. And she testified in that. She said, you know, those these compounds, these hormones are just too difficult for these guys to compound. They can't do it. You know, they just don't have the capability. And Peter and I have hundreds and hundreds of independent analytical lab testing potency showing that we have been able to con compound these within a 5% tolerance, which is much better than manufacturers who have a 10% plus or minus tolerance. We do a good job, and we take pride in that, and we test ourselves we validate our personnel to make sure that they can actually do what we say they, they can do. Would you agree, Pete? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And just speaking to your kind of understanding, putting yourselves in the mind of the FDA, I mean, I think there's also a fundamental misunderstanding of what it takes to make a person healthy. I mean, we, we exist because the manufactured options aren't working for people. We always were, right. we're a second, third, fourth resort 
for people. And I always say, you know, human health is very complex. People's disease states can be complex. When we look at FDA approval processes for manufactured drugs, usually there's inclusion and exclusion criteria. And, and there's a profit incentive, right? If a drug company has to be able to make money to bring something through that process. And there's just a lot of holes and gaps in that process for individuals to find the proper therapy. And we only account for maybe three or 4% of all dispensed prescriptions. We're a very small percentage. But it, we, we kind of fill in and around where the manufactured drugs have not served people. And so the, the idea that you could you kind of have all the needs for people's health be managed and regulated through an FDA approval process that's well controlled by a, a central controlling body is just it's it's not respecting how difficult and complex it can be to get from me from a state of sickness to a state of health and wellness and that's really where we come in i mean we're kind of we kind of go into the deep dive with our patients sometimes and really have to figure out what the heck's going on with them and it's not simple yeah and it's it's not really easy too when you're trying to have to tell somebody that we're making one-offs is essentially what it boils down right. to. Like that's, <laughs> yeah. that's not easy to explain. But you know, there's demand out there though. Um, Eric, I mean, I, I, I teach a class. It's a, it's a nine hour class. I, I do it in one day and it is uh, it's basically the nuts and bolts of how to practice integrative medicine. And it includes, you know, how to do bioidentical hormones for men and women and thyroid, you know, customized thyroid therapy and, and how to do lotusitrexone and, and, uh, and ethical supplements and incorporate some of the principles of integrative medicine into getting people healthier. And, you know, physicians are signing up for this and I'm teaching it twice in, in May. Um, and physicians are signing up for this because they're disillusioned with, with the type of medicine they're practicing. They're saying, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of not being able to help my patients. I remember one gynecologist took my course, and at the end of it, he said, Jim, I'm sick to my stomach. And I said, did I just give you too much information, Doc? And he said, no, no, Jim. He said, just great. He said, but I'm just thinking of all the women that I pat on the back, and I said, oh, honey, you're just getting older, or oh, honey, there's nothing we can do, or oh, honey, you know, it's all in your head. And he said, and I could have been doing something for them. I could have been making their life better, but I didn't know these tricks. I didn't know this way of practicing. And, uh, and for some of my patients, they didn't need this. But for the other patients that I've had on the back, I feel sick to my stomach. That I'm, I, that was malpractice on my part now that I know this information. So that's what Peter was trying to allude to is that, you know, whenever traditional medicine doesn't quite work, that's whenever you got to have another option. And that's what, my, what these physicians are seeking uh, knowledge about this kind of care. Yeah, I think that's a good point when it comes to that, too, because it's uh... – I, I think it is traditional medicine from what we think of or like, you know, Western medicine, but it's like those non-traditional answers to their problems is maybe a different way of wording that for patients just to help kind of drive that point across home. The, uh, the next part I wanted to ask you guys too, and I, I always like looking at it this way, although when you have somebody who sides on industry, I think you can sometimes get in a little bit of weeds with some of these answers, but if you could okay. formulate like a brief guide statement, like for the FDA on how to regulate compounding pharmacies because we all know that regulators are going to regulate that's not just a warren g song from the early 90s that's just how, how they look at how they look at these things but uh what would that look like if you guys could draw up a guidance for the fda so that if they came to inspect something like what you're doing they could actually do that in an effective manner i i, mean, I think we'd start with under and understand that our motives are aligned i mean that we both are here to protect 
uh, the health and wellness of our patients. And as a starting point to, you know, I, I think, and I, I think Jim would agree with me, you know, when I have somebody who's maybe a regulator or somebody who, you know, maybe my accreditation inspector comes in, I kind of ha- I'm kind of happy to see them because I know that if they're, they're understanding that I'm trying to do my best and I, I know I can always be better and they can come in and help me achieve that, then it's a win-win situation. They're doing their job. I can get better through having that person come in. And so I think it's having, having a conversation with the understanding that our motives are aligned, our, our, we're here to support the health and well-being of our patients, and that's absolute. And let's have a conversation about where your concerns are and how we can address those. And there's a lot of stuff we can do uh, at the ground level to, to do that. So that's, that's where I think the starting place would be. I don't know, what do you think, Jim? Um, well, in my brain, um, I, I really think that the state boards of pharmacy have always been and should continue to be responsible for protecting the state's citizens from bad actors. And, uh, and in, in fact, um, the congressional authors of the Drug Quality Security Act uh, intended just that. They intended the state boards of pharmacy to do the majority of inspecting. And then in, in cases where maybe there were complaints, the FDA should go in and, and investigate. Um, and so... So, but FDA is like any organization. It wants to be bigger. It wants to be more powerful. It wants to be able to exercise more control. And so, and, and in spite of that fact, though, as far as compounding goes, it may not be the best suited for the job of, of uh, overseeing compounding. Uh, the state boards of pharmacy have been doing it for a while. They're getting better and better at it. Um, and so I would like to see the FDA honor the wishes of the authors of Doug Causey Security Act. The authors did not intend them to act the way that they're acting right now. And uh, they've they've ignored, uh, the, and that the authors have been ignored, um, as proven by many of the FDA issued guidance documents that have severely been severely criticized by those original authors. I mean, those congressmen just said, you know, this is not what we intended. What they're doing and what we intended are two different things. So, anyway, that's that's uh, my two cents on that. It, it's funny how you know interpretation of something can go wildly different with how one person wrote it and how another person interpreted it when they read it. And I know I deal with that day to day when you're writing policies and stuff like that. So it's interesting that I can kind of relate to that a little bit. very inaccessible in a way too, which is really frustrating because as part of the executive branch, they're really not, they're not elected. (laughs) They're not really beholden to their constituents beyond, you know, the regulations that say you have to have these certain number of open meetings and things like that. And it's, and because I think of the institutional bias against what we do, it's been very hard to try to open these conversations with them and say, you know, what's going on here? You know, like, what, what, what don't you get? How can we you know, help make this, uh, you know, a better situation? So that's also frustrating, I think, in terms of just our ability to crack into uh uh, institution like the FDA that's kind of walled off from really much accountability beyond its accountability to maybe maybe Congress, although they've ignored Congress on this issue for a number of years. So yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of its own kind of thing that just kind of has a life of its own, and it's very difficult to kind of crack through and say, hey, wait a minute, hold, hold off. You know, you might be going a little too far here. Yeah, it's kind of like almost if you're not at the table, you're on the table, or maybe to yeah, right, exactly. To put a finer spin on it, if you're not on the compounding slab that you're fixing, I don't know, whatever. I, I'm missing the point there, but but you yeah. get what I'm saying. 
we were trying to say, if, yeah. if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Yeah, and we feel menu, like we're yeah, on the right. menu. We're, we are on the menu. We are the del- delicious morsel that they are ready to take a bite out of. Uh, <laughs> I, I was just going to say, I think what's interesting about it, kind of stepping back a little bit, is that we have this kind of, to me, two opposing trends that are happening, and we're right in the middle of it. One is this heavy-handed regulatory, and we see it from the FDA, we see it from our state boards, really not understanding, coming down, you know, kind of trying to make examples out of us when we're really trying to do the right thing. And then patients really wanting an alternative. They want kind of, as Jim described, you know, they want to feel healthier. They don't want to be told, you know, I'm sorry, you feel terrible, but there's nothing we can do for you. They want something more customized, more tailored to their specific needs. So I feel like there's these two forces opposing each other going in very strongly of different directions, and it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. But at the end of the day, I really believe that patients are going to have their say on this because they're they're demanding really different ways of being healthy and aging and, and having healthy aging and things like that. So um, I think that's something I'm seeing kind of as a macro. We'll yeah. see how that all plays out. All right. Well, I think that's a a good point and a good a good way to kind of put a pin on that part of it. So, I did want to get to the last two questions I ask every guest who comes on here, and I I know you guys know this really well, but I want to try and keep it a little bit concise for the for the uh, the listeners, if you will. If you could change, and I'm going to ask each of you this: if you could change anything about pharmacy that isn't a law, that could be like the culture, how it operates, perception, whatever. What would you What would it be that you change? And I'll start with uh, Pete first, and then go over to Jim. Yeah, the thing that comes to mind and it is just pharmacists stepping up even more so in every setting and exerting their clinical expertise and really making an impact for patients. I, we're, we're still so underutilized in the healthcare world, and we're, we have so much to offer. Um, so I think there's still a lot of room for pharmacists to really make their presence known in the healthcare sphere and and make them even more of an impact with our clinical knowledge. I can say that, that um, for me, I, I have um, an idea about ethics. I, I was appointed to the Texas State Board of Pharmacy Task Force with a goal of elevating the practice standards of underperforming compounding pharmacies in Texas. So in other words, I, they, they wanted us to elevate the ethics of our profession. And, uh, and, you know, that's true of any portion of the pharmacy profession. I mean, ethics, you know, is everything. I mean, we're, we're considered some, one of the most ethical of all um, entities out there. I mean, you know, we, we have a lot of public trust. And so this was important to me. And, and so I really took this seriously. And then, man, I had lots of meetings with, with uh, the task force. And we made lots of, of recommendations. And, and what we were hoping is that many of those underperformers who just don't know what they don't know, you know, we could help them to to elevate them, their practices. And, and then there's others who are cutting quality corners to save money. And they may just not be realizing that there's some negative impacts on patients when they cut those corners. And uh, and so one of my big goals was to make a, a standard of practice that, that brought those guys up out of the weeds, you know, to, and to have, like, for instance, um, independent analytical lab testing of finished compounds for each dosage form that we compound uh, to prove competency. And, uh, and so my, my kids at my store, we have uh, 36 employees and, and we have a lot of techs. And so any dosage form that they compound regularly, they have to pass twice a year a potency test, whether it's a capsule or a trochee or an injectable or um, 
uh, a solution. Um, whatever they're making, suppository, they have to pass all of those different dosage forms twice a year in order to prove their competency. And I don't have to do that. I do that because I want to prove that, that we're the good guys. And, uh, and Peter is the same way. I mean, we're the guys that are out there trying to elevate the profession um, and, and trying to make sure that, that the trust the public puts in us is deserved. I really like that. I think that's a great response that the profession can hold itself accountable. It just needs to be empowered to do so. All right. Last question. I'm going to start with, uh, with Jim first on this one. If you could change any law in pharmacy, federal or state, what would it be and why? Yeah, I would actually, uh, and this has been talked about quite a bit, I would really like to see the original authors of the Drug Quality Security Act uh, go back and clarify their intentions on several points. In other words, um, put in some addendums to clarify, because I'm not against the Drug Quality Security Act. I just think that there's uh, uh, some things that they intended that didn't get done. Like, for instance, um, FDA has banned office-use compounding, and the, the author said, no, we didn't intend to do that. Then we know that puts a big burden on, on doctors' offices. And then what about distribution versus dispensing? You know, they're trying to make it seem like we're warehousers. You know, we're, we're, we're dispensers. And, uh, and so the FDA sees it as exactly the same, distribution and dispensing. And also, I, I would like to um, – they, they wanted the state boards of pharmacy to be the primary regulators of compounding uh, pharmacies. And, uh, and unfortunately, FDA is trying to take the reins on that. And they've also, FDA is trying to reinterpret it to ban veterinary compounding. And that means all those, those inexpensive uh, compounds that we're making for vets, I mean, for, for pets, for your household pets, are going to be so expensive, you won't be able to afford them. And you're going to have to put that dog down or that cat down as opposed to get a $40 or $35 compound. I'd also uh, like to see some of the unintended consequences of the Quality Security Act reversed, like the so-called Pharmacy Compounding Advisory Committee, PCAC, which is misnamed because FDA unilaterally and indiscriminately bans long-used, safe, and effective bulk substances that we use in compounding. We call them active pharmaceutical ingredients. And they place them on the bulk substances do not compound list, and they don't even allow on this PCAC Advisory Committee any uh, compounding experts and compounding pharmacists. None. We're, we're banned from being in the decision-making process on something that affects our profession. And so people who don't know what we do are making decisions about us. And that's exactly the way the FDA wants it when it comes to compounding. And I want that reversed. All right. Uh, Peter? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's hard to top. That's all good stuff. I mean, I just, I don't, <laughs> I don't give it a lot of thought about the laws that I want changed because I don't want to live in a world of, personal frustration. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to learn from you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but what I would love to have, you know, they, we ha you have to do fiscal analysis on all bills and laws, but I would love to have personal health analysis on these regulations. You know, the, the FDA took away our ability to compound a hormone called HCG because it was deemed a peptide by its number of amino acids and a bunch of arbitrary rules about biologics and blah, blah, blah. And it just kind of happened with the, the stroke of a pen, and then all of a sudden patients can't get the medication. And there was no ever analysis or understanding of the impact on real human health with that decision. And I could repeat that story a hundred other times, and it gets really frustrating when I'm the one who has to call my patients and say, oh, I'm so, so sorry, you know, because the FDA decided that you're 
you know, compounded medication that's helping you has too many amino acids, I can't do it for you anymore. And my alternative is a $400 injectable. So, nationally um, right now. Sorry. Which is unavailable nationally. Right. Exactly. That's even unavailable. Right. So that, that, and that happens all, and, and, and it does make me very frustrated to see that level of callousness towards real world health uh, impacts with these regulatory decisions that really seem more like checking a regulatory box than really, you know, making a decision to benefit society. Yeah, I can totally understand that frustration just all around. Even, you know, just thinking how PBMs work and I've had to have them refuse BMX solution that I made in a pharmacy, which is like the easiest, simplest compound to make, let alone what you guys are dealing with. So I, uh, that's part of the reason I appreciate what you do so much and why I think you are such a great guest to have on the show today. So, uh, again, gentlemen, thank you for coming on the podcast. Where can people find you? Is LinkedIn a good way or what's a good way to kind of find you guys? They can find me at, at Las Colinas Pharmacy. It's L-A-S-C-O-L-I-N-A-S pharmacy.com. Uh, we've got a nice website there, and uh, and happy to have your responses and comments. Yeah, my website's probably a good place to find me, too. It's koshlandfarm.com, K-O-S-H-L-A-N-D-P-H-A-R-M.com. And I do want to mention there's also another site called compounding.com that is kind of talking a lot about this hormone issue, and it even has an opportunity for people who are on compounded hormones to write a testimonial um, that we're kind of collecting to help put that in front of the FDA to kind of show, you know, the real world importance of these therapies for different patients. So if patients who are listening want to go on there and learn more and then also provide their own story, that's a, that's a great place to go. It's just compounding.com. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that gentlemen. I'll make sure to put all that in the show notes as well as some of the other studies and reports and links as much as I can in the show notes for listeners. This should be a super informative one for those of you who want to learn a thing or two about compounding pharmacy and the current issues it faces. I think that's going to be a loaded loaded place of resources for you to go to. But thanks <laughs> thanks for joining the podcast. And uh, listeners, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics. <laughs>